Good morning, Salem Chapel family. Are we good? All right. Uh, my name is Will Plitt. I am going to be uh, pinch hitting for Pastor Johnny this morning. Um, and so I'm really excited if you're joining us in this room or you are joining us from another room. We're glad you're a part of this gathered, uh, as the church is gathering to worship and celebrate uh, the risen King. Um, so uh, if you've been following Jesus for a lot of years, or if you find yourself this morning um, seeking to understand what it means to follow Jesus for the first time, we're really, really glad uh, that you're here. So if you brought one of these, uh, a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're going to work our way through verses 1 through 11. Uh, we're in a, a series entitled Different. Um, where we're going verse by verse through 1 Peter. And here, if you're kind of new to this series, is the overarching theme, uh, kind of the mega theme that's, that's happening uh, in this letter. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us through his sinless life, through his substitutionary death, his death in our place on the cross, and his bodily resurrection, we are now called empowered by the Holy Spirit to live holy lives. That's just a kind of a, a biblical word for a set apart or a different kind of life than the world around us as we live as dispersed exiles, meaning this is not our final home. We'll talk about that this morning. As we eagerly await the return of Christ. So that's kind of the, the context that we're going to be working in. So I'm really Really excited about this passage. There were a couple of areas for me personally. It was very, very challenging. I was very, very convicted where it led to repentance. And I'll be transparent and share that with you. It's tremendously rich and full of transformational truth. It's said that there's three things in this world that will never lie to you. It's this. It's the word of God. It's a mirror. And it's my wife. <laughs> Just kidding about the mirror. Let me, let me pray, and uh, you guys are with me. That's good, and we'll jump in. Uh, Holy Father, uh, we come to you as a, a people who are prone to wander, uh, prone to live distracted lives, uh, prone to numb ourselves with the, thing of this, the things of this world uh, that in the end leave us bankrupt. Lord, we desperately need to hear from you. Um, Lord, your promise is your word uh, always fully accomplishes its perfect purposes as it goes out. I know that it will do so this morning. So by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in the lives of your people, bring about transformation in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. 1 Peter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read a little, and I'm going to talk a little, and we'll work our way uh, through this in a, in a pretty succinct manner. Um, so, verse 1, let me just remind us of the context uh, that Peter is writing. He's writing to Christians who have been scattered due to intense persecution. So, they're, they're all over the place. So, he opens up the section by saying, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, in light of Christians experiencing persecution, uh, you might think that Peter might say, hey, arm yourselves with self-defense. 
Sign up for Krav Maga, become proficient in Hapkido or Taekwondo, because you never know when persecution comes, you want to be able to defend yourself. But he takes a completely opposite approach to this. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You know, it's a reminder as I got into this is that Christians, followers of Jesus, are, are soldiers engaged in a, a fierce conflict on foreign soil. And we have to think clearly. Peter's going to kind of walk us through three kind of big categories of suffering, temptation, and future judgment. So let's tackle suffering in our short amount of time. You could do a whole entire series just on this one topic. Let's answer two questions. Where does suffering come from? Well, if you're a Christian, we know that it comes from Genesis chapter 3. It's when Adam and Eve sin against a holy God and they fall away from that holy and happy state. And everything in our world breaks from God's original intent and design. That's why our world is messed up. The second question that I want to spend the majority of my time uh, answering is what is suffering all about? And this is what Peter is, is going to really press into here, that we must understand first and foremost what suffering is designed to do as we share, as he tells us, in Christ's view of suffering. So what was Christ's view of suffering? Well, Christ offered the totality of his body, willingly, joyfully set, laid his life down to be crucified, executed upon a Roman cross. But we see, even with Jesus Christ, that his suffering had a divine purpose. What was that? It was to redeem us, to reconcile us, to make us right with a holy God, to atone or to pay for our sins and our atrocities against God. So Peter is saying, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Think about how Christ suffered for me and for you. And then we're to arm ourselves with the same understanding and the same attitude. Now, here's the reality. If you follow Jesus long enough, you, you know this to be true. Suffering as a Christian is not optional. It's inevitable. And the longer you follow Jesus and the more you make stands in love for his glory, for the sake of his name, the more we will experience this. So the question is not, will we experience suffering? The most important question is, how will we respond to it? When we experience this, he goes on in verse one, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin. Now, let me explain what this doesn't mean and, and what this does mean. It doesn't mean that if you've ever suffered for the sake of Jesus's name, that you have now entered into sinless perfection. The Bible, the whole of scripture would, would teach that's not true. That will happen when we're with Jesus one day. But then uh, what he's actually getting at here is that when you make a decision or a choice for Christ that inevitably cost you something and you experience suffering for his name's sake, it means in that moment you have quit living for yourself. And in that moment, there is a huge defeat against our enemy, Satan, and a huge defeat against sin. It means that 
following Jesus, our whole life's trajectory has changed. And I'm convinced we live in Bible Belt South, which is becoming less and less true. But in Bible Belt South, I believe it's one of several, but this is a really good way to know whether or not someone has a true saving faith. Many people claim to believe in God. Many people claim to be a Christian. Just because you believe in God, just because you claim to be a Christian, doesn't actually at the end of the day mean you're one. But what Peter's getting at here is here's one way you can know. When your faith in Jesus begins to cost you something, when you choose joyfully to suffer for the sake of Christ. You see, the Christian life is not ultimately about my comfort. It's not ultimately about my preference, and it's not ultimately about my name. So when we enter into a moment or a season of suffering, here's the reality of this. We, are, we put ourselves in a place of vulnerability, and we put ourselves in a place of danger because here's where you're tempted or going to be tempted in your thinking. You're going to wonder in those moments, is God with me? And is God for me? Is he, is he for me? Is he with you? And we're to arm ourselves in our thinking as Christ suffered that this, these are moments not of divine absence, but they're moments of divine grace. And when we arm ourselves with this truth and this thinking, what it does in those moments is is that it protects us from the lies of the enemy. And all of a sudden now we begin to to understand more like the the doctrine of providence. And that's just a, a big word that says nothing happens outside God's rule and reign, his providential care. So when I read passages and I meditate on passages like Romans 8 verse 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. So here's what we can know. When suffering comes, we can know that one, God has a purpose in my suffering. And we'll talk, unpack more of that. But it means that I can trust him in that moment with everything. And secondly, that I can obey him joyfully right now because I know that God is good and I know that God is for me. And in verse 2 He's going to give us basically two destinations that we can ultimately live our lives for. And it's the human passions, passions of this world, we'll talk about this, or the will of God. He says in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time. What's the rest of the time referring to? From the time that you become a Christian where you repent of sin, place faith in Jesus from that moment of conversion forward in the flesh, meaning that we're housed in this body, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Think of it like this. The the point of suffering is to make us a people who delight most in the will of God rather than what we can squeeze and get out of this world to serve ourself and our kingdoms. It's to continually just pry open our hands to transfer our hope from this world to his kingdom. And then in verse three, he's gonna, Peter's gonna kind of draw a line of demarcation, meaning that before you were a Christian, this is what your life looked at. You were a sinner 
And as a result of being a sinner, you did sinful things. And now you're a Christian and your life should now progressively over time begin to look different than your life before Jesus. And he says this in verse 3. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Think of it like this. I became a Christian when I was in my, my 20s. Uh, I grew up in church and got converted to church culture, but never to Christ. I was religiously lost. I had no idea that I needed Jesus. I had no idea what the gospel of grace was. And, and what Peter is saying here is that, that God had set a time aside for Will to do all of this sinning. Because that's all Will knew to do. He just sinned it up every single day of my life. But when I made a, a decision to receive Jesus Christ and place faith in him, that that old lifestyle, that old way of living, what I was living for now should be in my rear view mirror. That something in that moment fundamentally changed about me. That they also, when you read, uh, when Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, and he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. And now he's going to tell us what this old way of living looked like in the second part of verse 3. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I graduated from East Carolina University in 1991. This describes ECU to a T. It was a very dark place for me. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. How dare they malign me? All of these fall into the category of unrestrained behaviors. That even though these unrestrained behaviors are in my past, Jesus has forgiven me for them. Do you know what? They're still around. And they still desire to entice me and draw me back to them. And Peter is saying we must understand the past and the present temptations. Just because we become a Christian. I've talked to so many Christians over the years. It's like I became a follower of Jesus and my life actually got worse. It's not working. And they thought that somehow the, the magic pill was all of life will be great. It'll all be, I'll be wealthy, healthy, wise. I'll have, you know, the perfect life. But just because we become a Christian doesn't mean that we are exempt from these temptations every single day. And if Satan cannot stop you from being a Christian, which he cannot, then he will spend the rest, he'll devote the rest of his life to enticing you and tempting you with the things of this world that will derail you and leave you bankrupt in the end. And Peter says, look, when you don't join in the unrestrained behaviors, they malign you. They, another word for that is slander. They slander you because you don't join in. You know what it's what is? It's a foreshadowing 2,000 years ago of what we now call the cancel culture. 
Everybody familiar with that? Did a little homework on that. Cancel culture is basically says, if I don't like what you say, your opinion, your view, your truth, whatever it might be, I will erase you, cancel you out from culture. It's the cancel culture. Personally, this is my conviction. And part of this is being able to have the joy of working with the church across North America and seeing uh, Christianity in cities where it's almost non-existent anymore. But personally, I believe that persecution against Christianity and Christians is already here. And it will become more widespread in the days ahead. And, And I think we just have to think clearly about that. The cost of following Jesus because it's going to be an increase to, uh, in communal temptation. Like the, the peer pressure. Because Christians are now a, a minority. So you know, there's going to be a peer pressure for us to, to join in with obscene or, or coarse joking or objectifying men and women. Or getting on the gossip train. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, right? I'm with you on that. Or belittling people because they have a, a certain political affiliation. Or attacking people because of the color of their skin. Or you don't like what they stand for. And there's always going to be before us in an increasing manner the temptation of mockery. Like look, nobody, no Christian wants to be viewed as the, uh, uh, the religious do-gooder, Ned Flanders, who lives next door to Homer Simpson. He's always walking around saying zippity-doo-dah, life is just all great and grand and I have no problems with my life. And Peter's saying, look, when we don't join in with the unrestrained behavior of the world, and they slander you, and they malign you, it hurts. Can I just acknowledge that it hurts? I used to be one of those guys like, I don't care what they think. Yeah, I do. We do. We're social beings. We do. But my friends, we are called. We are called to walk by faith. We're not called to walk in fear. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.7, For I, I've given you a spirit, not, not a spirit of fear and timidity, but a, a spirit of power, love, and of self-discipline. We're to live by conviction, not by guilt. Charles Spurgeon, a famous dead preacher, said this, How strange is our world. It speaks evil of men because they will not do evil. Think about that. When you follow the way of Jesus, the world at times will mock you, persecute you, slander you, and even hate you. And we, Peter is saying, we must arm ourselves in our thinking. We must understand the present temptation in regard and have Christ-like thinking in regard to what it means to suffer. Verse 5, if you have a pen, circle the word but. But. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I thought about this. If we don't understand the eternal realities of heaven and hell, then this world at times won't make any sense. It just won't. 
it's like, oh, my goodness, it's getting worse. It's like, oh, my goodness. You know, Asian women were shot in Atlanta. And just to turn the news on, it was bombarded everywhere we turn. You see, the, the whole world, whether we acknowledge this or not, the whole world is marching toward one of these two eternal realities. And when we struggle... It's our, our obedience, and I'll, I will say our joyful obedience. Like to obey, it's not about our begrudging submission. It's about our joy. That your obedience and your struggling will be vindicated, and the mocker will be silenced eternally on that day. Justice at the return of Christ will prevail, and every wrong will be made right. We get a snapshot of the story of Noah and his family being saved, and God bringing his judgment upon mankind and upon his creation. And Peter is saying, you used to live like this, and you used to do these things because that's who you were. And now you don't, and you're going to be maligned. And he's saying, it's okay. Be faithful. Be faithful. Don't give up. Stand firm. One day, if not in this life, they will give an account. Man, aren't we thankful that our hope as Christians is in Jesus? Jesus is our righteous and just king. And he will perfectly execute judgment on that day. And because he is our judge, listen to this. There's some, here's some liberation, some freedom right here. It frees us up as Christians to not walk around and be little judges to the world around us. Verse 6 concludes this section here. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. I'll explain what that means. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The English translation is a little awkward here. What, what Peter is saying is, is, is this, that the gospel was preached to people, like today we're hearing the gospel, and then they died. The gospel was preached, then they died. Because scripture clearly teaches us that there's no chance of repenting and placing faith in Jesus after we die. That's Hebrews 9 verse 27. There's only one chance for salvation. And it's found in this life. And Peter is pointing to the fact that Christians can be and will be falsely accused by men. That goes back to the curse of Adam. But one day, in the presence of God, they will receive their true judgment. So when suffering and slandering and temptation comes... My friends, we have to remember that this life is not all that there is. That we are living in the shadow of eternity. And we're to arm ourselves with the same thinking, the same attitude of how Christ suffered for me. And when we do, this way of thinking in those hard moments will bring defense against the lies of the enemy. And the Holy Spirit will give me a, a vaccine in the moment that will renew my strength, my comfort, and my hope to the spiritual battles that we are facing. Isn't that good news? Now in verse 7, there's a, a shift that takes place. 
And he says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Aren't you glad you got up this morning for all of this? <laughs> I promise there's good news in all of this. The end of all things is at hand. I love the language that the Apostle Peter is using here. He's conveying a sense of deep urgency. You know where I was convicted this week? That there are moments and seasons in my walk with Jesus where I just don't live with a sense of urgency. I just don't. I just don't. And, and I have to go back and, and I have to go, man, what's at stake? Well, what's at stake is life and death. What's at stake is heaven and hell. They're the people that are far from God but close to me, all around me. That's what's at stake. And Peter's saying, we live in between the two advents of Jesus Christ. We celebrate the one at Christmas when he came, entered into our world as a baby, grew up to become a man, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended back into heaven. And the second advent, when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Here's what it means. The consummation of his plan is upon us. That we live in, in what biblical scholars call the church age. Where we as the church, and the church, not this building, the people of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are to be committed to the fulfillment and to the completion of the Great Commission. That we're in the final stages of this great plan of salvation, and it's being worked out in our midst. Do you know what 7.8 billion people on the face of the earth all have in common? All of us will die. We will experience a physical death. It means, as Peter is using this language, that for every one of us, the Lord is at hand. Why? We don't know the day, the time, the hour when my life will cease to exist. If you've lived long enough and you followed Jesus long enough, I've watched people die. They didn't know Jesus. They thought they had time and, and, and you know, the rest of my life, I'll get to Jesus one day. And, and they checked out. All of life is to be lived in the shadow of eternity. And then Peter is going to give us now some instruction on how to live in light of the end of all things are at hand. And I'm going to say that these four things are not insurmountable. They are four radical minimums that he gives us as followers of Jesus. He's going to use the word, therefore. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, in light of that truth, there should be some certain things that we're doing on a daily basis. And it's not hoarding, and it's not doomsday preppers. The first command for living in the shadow of eternity is prayer. Therefore, be self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now notice the connection between self-controlled and sober-minded and, and our prayer life. Right, do, do you remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, when we talked about gird up your loins, like, you know, uh, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded. He, he's pulling the same type of thinking into this so that our prayer lives don't get hijacked. He's saying, think clearly, be governed by clarity and truth, that we are to be awake 
and alert because our prayer life is at stake. Christian, did you know that your prayer life shows how utterly dependent we are upon God to work? And if you asked yourself that question, and 10 was, I pray like Jesus, and one, it's in the toilet, where would you land on that? Where would you land on that? John Piper, uh, the former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, I'm going to read a quote. I don't read quotes very often because nobody pays attention to them, but this is really good. So listen. Prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. And prayer is the turning away from ourselves in the confidence that he will provide the help we need. Listen, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. He's using the same language that Peter is is driving. He concludes, God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Isn't that good? For those of us that don't pray, prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. It simply means, Jesus, thank you for saving me, but I've got it from here. I don't really need you anymore. Or if your prayer life largely resembles something like this, you continually pray for Ann Ann's big toe, cousin Bobby's bladder, Uncle Sam's slip disc, or your relational, your financial crisis that you slip into in and out every day. Of like, God, I just need you to do something for me right now. Do you, and, and I don't want to minimize those things because we're to bring all things to the Lord. He cares. But if that's all we're bringing to the Lord, then it shows that all we're doing is seeking the hand of God and not the face of God. What's at the center of our prayer life? Is it ultimately about my kingdom or is it ultimately praying about God's kingdom be done here on earth as it is in heaven? James Walker says this, we spend more prayer energy trying to keep sick Christians out of heaven than trying to keep lost people out of hell. It's very convicting. If you want a great book on prayer, uh, a good friend of mine, Daniel Henderson, wrote Transforming Prayer. Go to Amazon, order it, get it. Don't go to Amazon right now. Hang with me. You can do it afterwards. Great book on prayer. Verse 8, he's going to give the second command for living in the shadow of eternity, and it's this, loving one another Earnestly, Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. So what does love mean? What does earnestly mean? Well, the Greek word love here is the word agape. It means more than the butterflies you have in your stomach when you go to pick up your, a girl or you know, your first date. It's not a, a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's an action. It's an action that I serve, I love, I care, I forgive, regardless of how I feel. The word earnestly is a really neat uh, picture. It means uh, it's the extent to which we love. So you kind of imagine this. It means to to strain or to, to stretch something to its full potential or capacity. 
So it's a picture of a, of a racehorse galloping wide open. Every ligament, tendon, and muscle is engaged as it strides for what it's doing. And you say, man, what kind of person loves like that? At best, at best, we love conditionally, don't we? I'll love you if you, I'll love you until you, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. For many of us, our love has a rev limiter. It's a mechanical term, if you don't know that. That was for my son. Nobody in the world, I'm convinced. And I've met a Buddhist in Korea. They're the most loving, peace-filled people. I'm convinced nobody can do this in the world except people who have already experienced this kind of love. Do you know who that is? It's us as followers of Jesus. That we have sinned in multitude upon multitude against a holy God. How then did God respond to us? He covered our sin with the action of love. That's the the beauty and the depth of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, his begotten son, so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have life eternal. So what was God's response? God loved. Out of his love, he gave. What is our response? We believe and receive the free gift of salvation so that we can become a people that progressively, earnestly loves one another. When we love like this, it will cover a multitude of sin. Meaning that when people do you ugly, they do you wrong, or they sin against you, in those moments we're called to lay upon their wrongs the action of love. Listen, this is the opposite of eye, to eye, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, this is the opposite of like, oh God, please give me mercy. But man, I want Jimmy to have justice. He needs justice. See how that works its way out into our lives? So it means like when you're cut off in traffic or somebody cuts in front of you in line. I hate when somebody cuts in front of me in line. Or your boss or your supervisor, they treat you disrespectfully. Or you get a nasty text or somebody blows you up on social media. Or your husband and your wife's not meeting your needs. Or you're like, I can't believe they won't wear a mask. Or I can't believe they wear a mask. I can't believe you're not going to get the vaccine. I can't believe you got the vaccine. I can't believe you voted that way. I can't, whatever, 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 whatever. You cover their actions with love. With love. When you do this, and some of you do this, and some of you have seen this, it actually begins to change people, doesn't it? You know, the great love chapter in in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13 I always think that like Luther Vandross should be singing in the background when I read that. If you're a millennial, that just went over your head. I I get that. Paul says this, if I have all of these things, but I don't have love, I have nothing. I have nothing. And he concludes by saying faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Love. John 13, verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. Verse 9, he gives us a third command for living in the shadow of eternity and it's hospitality. I was particularly convicted over this one. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. (laughs) Let's understand what biblical hospitality is. Because Christians kind of mix this and fellowship up. Hospitality generally is referred to welcoming strangers into your life, into your home, as you would a close friend or a family member. But Peter is extending this to include, because he uses the language one another, that's the family of God. The adopted sons and daughters of Jesus. So, what does it mean to show hospitality? Does it mean that we have to contract with Martha Stewart so she comes into her home and makes everything look great or that her home has to look like a picture of Better Homes and Garden or Pinterest or or whatever it is, that we have to have that kind of home in order to do this kind of hospitality? Well, if you did that, that's just simply called entertaining. And entertaining ultimately is about you and how cool your place is where shallow conversation happens. Hospitality goes much deeper. Hospitality is engaging in the hearts of people and as they walk away, they leave encouraged and refreshed in the gospel. Hospitality is about welcoming people into your home so that God might refresh their hearts by sharing his love through you. So what is so significant about our homes. Now, I know there's exceptions because some of you have terrible homes. You have a terrible home life. You were raised in a bad home. And so I, I, I hear you. I acknowledge that. But when you have your home one day, what's so significant about that? It's the place where you are fully known and fully loved, where you can unwind, uh, be restored, be refreshed. It's kind of an oasis. It's your base camp. It's a place of safety. And Peter's saying we're to bring others into this so that they might also experience what we are experiencing. Now, here's the rub. The rub is this. I don't want other people to invade that at times. What if the verse said this? Show hospitality to one another with grumbling. I'd be like, I'm your man. I've got it. I've got it. When we grumble, or another word that you could use here is lament, it's revealing something in our hearts. It's revealing selfishness, and it's revealing self-centeredness, which is toxic to hospitality. Listen, hospitality will cost you something. It's never, rarely going to be a good time. People are going to not even ring your doorbell or knock. They're just going to come walking right in. They're going to come into your home with little to no self-awareness. They think differently. They act differently. They don't know how to drive and they run it, you know, mess up your yard, run over your bushes and they come into your house and they have mud on their shoes and they track mud in. They sit on your brand new couch. They spill something. They break something. They go into your refrigerator. They eat whatever they want to eat. Then they go into your cabinets and they drink your top shelf lemonade. That was therapy for me, by the way. That was my list. As I made that list, it was also the reminder that all of this is momentary. 
It's a momentary environment to use for the glory of God. And when I'm cleaning up whatever mess it is, it's a picture that God made a gospel deposit into the life, hopefully, of another person. There is no better place, my friends, for mission and ministry than your home, than around your dinner table. Jesus came eating and drinking, and it is a great, great place to invite people in. Verse 10, he gives the final command for living the shadow of eternity. It's the stewardship of gifts. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Uh, gifts and uh, Gift and grace are synonymous uh, in the original language. It means favor, it means blessing. So kind of think of the verse like this. If you're in corporate America, you'll understand this. Uh, you should understand this even if you're not. Uh, why does a, a major corporation hire a CEO uh, when they hire a man or woman to be a CEO? At the end of the day, they hire, a C, uh, they hire a CEO to strategically work to turn a profit for the shareholders. Pretty simple. So at the end of that, they're either going to receive a commendation, good job, or condemnation, terrible job, you're fired. And so when you read through the gospel accounts, Jesus talks an awful lot about stewardship. You know, it's the parable of the talents. It's the parable of the minus. It's the question, how are we as God's people using the gifts that God has given us to serve the common good of others? Every Christian has been given gifts. This list is not exhaustive, but here's a few. We've been given the gift of salvation. We're to steward the gospel of grace. We have certain passions, certain talents. Uh, we have certain abilities, unique gifts, spiritual gifts that are imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. We have certain burdens that we would love to see fixed. We have wealth and possessions and relationships and jobs and experiences. All of this, what will we do with all of this as God has given these things to us? And then he concludes in verse 11, he gives us two examples of serving. You know what they are? Speaking and serving. <laughs> we, we know in scripture that there's way more gifts listed, right? We can read 1 Corinthians 12 and lots of other places. So why is Peter only mentioning two of these gifts? Are these gifts like super gifts? If you have them, then you're like super Christian and everybody else is kind of like, you know, Sunday league Christian. Like what, what is that all about? He's saying this, that these two gifts are radical minimums for every Christian. Every Christian can speak and every Christian can serve. Everyone can be used by God. There's no exceptions. There's no excuses. And so he qualifies when we speak, we're to speak the oracles of God. It's kind of an antiquated kind of language there. But it just simply means this. Every one of us, if you're a Christian, has been saved the same way through Jesus. And every Christian has been given the Holy Scriptures. So when we speak, we're to speak with what accords to the truths of Scripture. You know what it means? It means, my friends, we've got to, like, read our Bibles. We've got to know the Word of God for yourself, for yourself, that your mouth should be an amazing gift. It should be an amazing gift. And serve 
One body, many parts. We all have a role to play to serve the body to help meet needs. You know what Peter's doing? He's just removing all barriers. And you say, well, I don't know my spiritual gifts. Therefore, I can't do anything. I have to wait till I discover what those are. No, just start with these two, speaking and serving, and then watch what God will do. I'm convinced as I kind of trace back my, my call into ministry away from being a small business owner, like, I didn't know anything. And we were part of a church plant in the 90s, and I was like, oh, you need help setting up and breaking down. I can do that. And then I just started opening my mouth as I learned about Jesus and was being discipled, and then God, and it just eventually led me to become a pastor and church planner and all the other things. I've done just, it just simply started there. I didn't have a spiritual gifts inventory or the, you know, what's my Enneagram number or my Strength Finder's top five or my disc or my APEST. All great tools, but just start with speaking and serving. And then he ends the section by saying and reminding us, It's all about his glory. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why does he remind us about the glory of God? To guard our hearts against self-righteousness and pride, lest we think it's all about us. My friends, God's glory is more important than my story. God's glory is more important than my story. So as I conclude, how do we know that grace has begun to work its way deep into the core of my identity of of who I am? It's by the way that we progressively practice these four commands as we live in the shadow of eternity. How in the world do I do that as a Christian? Well, Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if you're a follower of Christ, it's being reminded of the example that Jesus set for us. What did Jesus do? Jesus prayed. John 17, verse 20, 2,000 years ago, if you're a Christian, he prayed for you, for those who would believe in him through his word. Jesus taught his disciples, when you pray, not if, when, pray like this. Jesus continually got time alone with the Father for strength and encouragement for the mission that was before him. Jesus loved us earnestly. Galatians 2, verse 20, the second half of the verse says, In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus showed us hospitality. Jesus walked around 33 years as an alien, as a stranger, and he welcomes us in as strangers, and he adopts us as his sons and his daughters. He served us. Jesus had all the gifts, but he poured into the 12 and ultimately laid his life down. Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Last week, Pastor Johnny talked about 1 Peter 3, verse 18. He suffered once for all. And my friends, he's coming again. 
He's coming again. The end of all things is at hand. So don't be surprised when you stand up, show up, speak up in love for the sake of Jesus' name and you experience suffering and you are slandered. Jesus says in John 16, that if they hate me and they persecute me, they'll do the same thing to you. Let me encourage you, if you are listening to this right now and you are in a season of suffering, remember the promise that Jesus gives to us in Matthew 28, 20. Remember, I am with you to the very end of this age. And in the moment and in the season of, season of suffering, Go to Luke 24. Jesus has been crucified. He's been raised from the dead after three days. Two of his disciples are on the road to Emmaus. Jesus shows up and begins talking with the two disciples who are downtrodden and discouraged. And Jesus begins to unpack God's word and says, all this is about me. The disciples don't recognize they're walking with Jesus. It's only later when he breaks bread with them that they see Jesus the risen Messiah. So even though you might not recognize Jesus in your suffering, he's with you. He's with you. If you're not a Christian, man, can I, ah, can I plead with you to repent? Repent of your sin for who you've been and what you've done against a holy God and receive by faith the good news of Jesus Christ. Become a part of the Messiah family. I'll close with this. Another dead guy, Martin Luther. He said, the call is to live as if Jesus was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is returning tomorrow. May we be a people that live with that kind of urgency Our world so desperately, desperately needs to see the people of God living differently in the midst of our current times. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for those that are listening, for those that are in the midst of experiencing suffering, and trials, and slandering. Remind them right now that you're good and that you're with them. Lord, as we we hear this call to action, this sense of urgency, Lord, let's just, let me just pause for a moment to let your people answer the question, what are you saying to them? And what do you want them to do with what you're saying? Father, move your people. Shake our hearts. Anything that has attached itself to our hearts, loosen our grip on the things of this world so that we might fully live for the will of God. By the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.